We're out of place I'm doing fine I'm feeling great You're not my fan You can't relate Straight talk going safe It's not safe Before you cross me Look both ways Leaving the scene With no trace Not in my lead You out of place I'm not at the top I'm out of space Can't eat with us We're out of place I'm doing fine I'm feeling great You're not my fan You can't relate Straight talk going State to state I'm your host Your boy George Mackay It is going to be the second week of May When this one drops And man oh man Do I got a good one I have the author of the amazing book, Blood and Fire, The Unbelievable Truth of Wrestling's Original Sheik. This is a fantastic read, and this man really dove deep into a man who doesn't allow kayfabe at all, even while he was alive and for most part after his death. Please help me welcome Brian Solomon to Straight Talk Wrestling. How are you, sir? I'm doing great, George. I'm I'm glad to be here, and I never get tired of talking about the Sheik and and just the book and wrestling in general. So um, yeah, this is a, a pleasure for me. Absolutely, it's we're going to get into a lot of talk topics today, obviously. But one thing I do want to talk about is uh, you know Blood and Fire, the unbelievable real life true story of the original Sheik. Now this is a man whose I guess origins were really clouded in a lot of kayfabe, very protective of his personal life mixing with his wrestling life it was a big no-no back in the day in wrestling a lot of wrestlers well, not a lot of them some of them still hold true to that kind of mentality but a lot thanks to the internet the curtain has been pulled back how hard was it for you though to really dove deep into researching this man's story especially when his family his own family was very protective of keeping everything secret it was very hard. I mean, there's no there's no way to sugarcoat it. It was um, it was so difficult that there were times that I just started second guessing myself for even taking it on because um, it really was there was a lot of almost like archaeology compared to what would happen. You know, like, for example, if I wanted to write a biography of I don't know. Bill Clinton or somebody, you know, there, he's done 8 million interviews. There's video there. There's, you know, him talking about himself, a million other people talking about him out there. Um, but I, I wouldn't have even needed to talk to anybody personally that knew him. There's just so much out there, but for something like this, where it's somebody that hid their entire life on purpose and never spoke publicly, only his closest friends and family knew how he really was who even I discovered sometimes worked his own friends and family about certain things about his own early life. And, um, you know, it, that was his intention. He never gave a single interview ever, never spoke publicly in his own voice ever, not even one time that I could find. And um, so I had to kind of piece it together in a much more indirect kind of way, you know, kind of go get to get around that problem I had to create the narrative just based on clues and things that I would have to find, you know? Absolutely. And the one thing I loved about this book, and like I told you before we push record, I'm about three quarters of the way through, but it's been a fantastic read uh, just with life and kids and work. You don't really find a lot of time to sit down and enjoy it. But when I have, I've been, it's been a great read thus far. I found that when I read it, it didn't read like a normal biography. It almost read mm -hmm. like this unbelievable story that just kept me riveted page turner after page turner some of the quotes and even some of the things that you couldn't really substantiate you put out there in the book you're like i could never find proof of this i could never substantiate this and, and that was what was great to me because it was almost like you were telling everyone who's reading this listen i'm going off of everything i could find but there wasn't a whole lot that i could find at some points 
and the origin story. Like this is a man who comes from a big family, family who came here chasing that American dream. And he himself didn't want to get, you know, his brothers were able to get education. He unfortunately was not only substantiated till from what you could find, even in his army records, only a certain year of schooling. And he found a way to not just be another, you know, guy on the line. Because, you know, Michigan, very big in the automotive industry. It was the, the pinnacle of the automotive industry during that time period. And I, yeah, I just, yeah. I found it riveted in me so much. But I guess I got to ask, I should have started with this question. What made you want to chase down this story? What made you want to tell this story? What kind of turned you to that direction? I think it was just because it had never been told. You know, like like you were saying, it was, uh, there was so much in the dark about him and I felt like it was a major injustice. I don't know if that's the right word, but the idea that no one had ever told his story. I couldn't think of another wrestling star, especially from his era, who was as big as he was that didn't ever have their story, their real life story told. So when I was thinking about it, because I'd written a couple of wrestling books before, they weren't biographies. So I thought, I want to try to do a biography. I want to do something that's personality driven, that's built around one person. Who could I do? So, I mean, you know, most of the wrestling biographies are autobiographies, right? Where, where it's the actual person that's either writing it or involved in the writing of it or whatever. And so I thought, well, I could take on one of those and just do something independent. You know what I mean? Like Ric Flair, I could do a book that's just by me, but it has, you know, Ric Flair not involved or Hulk Hogan or whoever, you know. Um, but then I thought, why don't I try to tackle somebody that has never been done in any way? And I've been fascinated by the Sheik since I was a kid, even though he was before my time, just seeing him in wrestling magazines and hearing about him and seeing old video and stuff and, and getting into the history of the Detroit territory, which no one talks about anymore outside of the Detroit area even though it was once one of the hottest territories in the business, I just thought, okay, let's dig into this and let's tell this story. And like you were saying very early in the process, I realized I had to be transparent and I had a lot about, you know, my process. I had a long conversation with a good friend of mine named Keith Elliott Greenberg, who has, I, I knew him, you know, I worked with him at WWE and he's written a few great wrestling books, including biographies where he had to work with people. He did the Flair one. He did the Blassie one. He did the superstar Graham one. And from that conversation, I basically kind of came to the terms with the fact that I couldn't take this kind of like omniscient narrator voice. Like I know everything, everything in this book is fact. You know, I'm handing it down from the mountaintop and this is 100 percent, you know, so I had to be very honest with the reader. And I do it all through the book and say, look, this is me, the author talking right now. I'm not totally 100 percent sure if this story is true. And I'm going to tell you that I'm going to tell you that this is the story that was passed around. Maybe it's true. Maybe not. This is a different version that may have happened. Maybe it didn't happen. I'm also going to tell you in my own opinion, which one I think is true. I do that a couple of times too, where I'm like, I think this is probably the true version and this stuff is an exaggeration. Like I felt like I had to be that transparent because you know what? Otherwise it would bite me in the ass, to be honest with you. If, if, if you write a book like this and then it comes out later that, oh, this story that you said is gospel truth, this, this thing never even happened and now you look like an idiot. So, you know, it, it pays to be honest and be direct with your reader and not try to pretend that you know things that you don't know. 
Absolutely. But I think it's a credit to you and your writing ability that you actually gave the reader credit. You, you, you made the reader part of the story in an essence by being that transparent. You allowed me to kind of think of my own narrative because at the end of the day, whether you're reading a biography, an autobiography, fiction, nonfiction, whatever you're reading, some of your imagination is going to take shape. It's inevitable because you're reading a book so you can paint whatever picture you want to paint. But I feel in your writing, you didn't guide me where you wanted me to go. You didn't suggest where I should go. You said, listen, this is what I could find. This is what I couldn't. And in my own head, I was able to say, you know what? Even though he said he he couldn't find fiction on the story, just because I love the Sheik, I'm going to go with what he wrote because I think it's enjoyable. I, even if that story turns out to be bullshit in my own head, I'm okay with it. <laughs> well, th that that's part of my thinking too, is that I love wrestling urban legends and myths and like these stories you hear. And, you know, I found Dark Side of the Ring to be very fascinating, but even beyond just the the, the dark stories, just in general... I, I have an interest in these kind of legends of, of wrestling. And by legends, I mean like legendary stories. And so to me, sometimes it doesn't even matter. And I'll be careful how I say this. It doesn't always matter if it's true or not. It, sometimes the story is just so entertaining. You kind of want it to be true. But when I'm writing a book like this, I will tell you that, right? Like this may not be true, but it's a really cool story. And I could not leave it out. Because this story is so amazing that just the fact that people were telling it, it's worth the reader knowing that this story is out there. Like, you know, um, one big example that was so mysterious and I could never 100% get to the bottom of it was this. I don't know if you got up to this part yet, but when it's talking about how when Vince McMahon started moving into Detroit with the yes, WWE. I, I have passed that part. Yes. Yes. And there was this, and lots of people I interviewed would give me different versions of this whole thing where he brought in the Sheik for a meeting. And some people were telling me like the entire purpose of the meeting was to humiliate the Sheik. Cause you know, like how in that era, in the mid eighties, Vince would take on some of these legends from other territories and give them jobs like what he did with the Briscoes or, you know, even with like Jack Tunney, who was running the, the Toronto promotion. And he brought them in and he would like work with them and do things with them. And there was a story that he wanted to do that with the Sheik, but that the meeting fell apart. And some people were telling me it was the Sheik's fault because he was demanding too many things. Other people said Vince made him get down on his knees and beg, like almost like it was a like a, a segment on Monday Night Raw, like the Kiss My Ass Club or something. And then you had other people that were like, you know, it probably never even happened like at all. And so I had to take all that and put it together because it's such a fascinating story. I didn't want to just leave it out of the book because I couldn't prove it, but I also wanted to be honest. So I just, you know, I covered my bases. Well, you did. You absolutely did cover your bases. And again, for me, I, I, some parts of it are true. I could see just from what you wrote about the Sheik that he was very demanding, was very protective, wanted to make sure, you know, his legacy was protected. But I could also see Vince McMahon not so much making him bow, but I could see Vince McMahon being Vince McMahon in that meeting. Mm -hmm. He's always been Vince McMahon. I almost find the character of Mr. McMahon and Vince McMahon to be not so different. People say, oh, he's playing this larger-than-life character. I don't know, man. There's a lot, especially from Dark Side of the Ring. They've shed a lot that Vince McMahon and Mr. McMahon are one and the same. But, I mean, you left it open where it couldn't be proved, but you had to leave it in the book. But in the end, in my imagination, I believe that the Sheik walked in there knowing the reputation Vince McMahon had and said, I've got a reputation too. I'm going to protect what I built. 
I've, I've built right. this. I've created this. I am the top heel in this business at this time. And nobody's going to tell me different. Right. Well, one thing that was very clear to me that is not in my mind disputed is the fact that the Sheik did not like Vince McMahon, mm-hmm. uh, the son, Vince McMahon. He There was bad blood there. I couldn't quite figure out if it went both ways, but the Sheik definitely told a lot of people how much he couldn't stand Vince and said a lot of nasty things about him. There were even things that Sheik said about Vince that I didn't even include in the book because they would have been considered libelous, honestly, especially if I couldn't prove them, like really awful things that he accused him of or said about him or rumors he tried to spread and things like that. And 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 when I was researching, I was even trying to figure out that the bad blood could have even gone back to the days of Vince's father, Vince Sr., who the Sheik worked for for years and as a wrestler and then later as a promoter, they worked together. They were on the NWA boards together and they even co-promoted together and things like that. But there seems to have been some kind of a falling out at some point. And it was this very complicated story and in the 70s. And this is where you, you kind of run into the brick wall of when things are so far in the past that most of the people are gone. So you can't really talk to anybody of authority. You might be able to talk to people who were around then, but they were like kids. You know what I mean? Like, like they were like the rookie in the locker room or like actually a literal child, you know? And so their authority on the truth of what happened and didn't happen is a little shaky when it gets to some of those things. Like there are very few people, you know, the only person, well, there was no, there was nobody that I was able to talk to who was like, of a similar age as the Sheik, because you're talking about people that would be in their 90s now. But I did, you know, I would get to talk to people who were maybe like the generation after, like Terry Funk was very helpful, Kevin Sullivan, uh, Flying Fred Curry, maybe the most helpful of all, because he worked extensively in the Sheik's territory for many years, and his family was very close to the Sheik's family, you know, but he was like, he was like the age of, you know, the Sheik's kids, you know what I mean? But still, he was, he was, pretty close and and dave brzezinski who's you know very well known in the the, in the michigan area wrestling scene he was the sheik's last manager he worked in the office there he was very close to to a lot of things and i got a lot of insight from him he was amazing in his input but again he also was a kid back then you know he was a kid in the 70s like you know a teenage boy in this in the 60s as a fan so so um there's only so far into the inside that you could get, you know, it's like event with this much time passing and things not being recorded and written down. Some things are just lost. That's the sad truth. Just lost to to history. Yeah. And it's gotta be like, I mean, I I looked at this when, when uh, I I was able to set this up with you and I got the copy of the book. I was just like, man, you're talking decades. You're talking 70. When you started writing this book, you're talking almost 70 years after most of this stuff happened and close to almost, Mm -hmm. 80 or 90 from his childhood stuff, like hitchhike it to New York and all that craziness that he was doing when he was a kid. Right. I'm sitting there going, I don't know how he's able to comb through all this. If that was me, if I put it all on a table with red string and I'm trying to connect (laughs) everything, I would have sat there and Brian, I would have pulled my head up, my hair up. I would have been like, forget it. There's, there's no, that's why it took so long. Yeah. (laughs) It took me three, three years. I mean, it was a three year process and uh, I didn't even, I signed the, I pitched the book in the summer of 2019 I signed the deal to start working on it in November 2019. 
November 2019. Now, I didn't even start. I didn't type a single word until the summer, summer of 2020, because all I was doing up till then was interviewing people, researching things, looking things up. And even when I started writing, I was still doing that. And you mentioned like the story of him hitchhiking to California, which was as a 12 year old, which was the story I decided to start the book with. Because that I found that from going through old newspapers, which thankfully we now have things like newspapers.com. I didn't have to get on an airplane. I didn't have to go to Lansing, Michigan. Um, newspapers.com, the thing, you know, I, I was able to discover this story that unless you knew what you were looking for, I don't think you'd ever be able to find. And and honestly, it was like I'm I'm reading it going. You know, it's from like 1937, 1937, this newspaper account. And it just mentions 12 year old, you know, Edward Farhat. And I'm going, oh, my God, I think I'm the only human being alive on planet Earth who is aware that this happened now that I'm reading this. So I, I really think so, because you never hear that story. No one ever told that story. And I'm going, oh, my God, this has to be the start of the book. This is like the opening chapter of the book. I, I had to do it. Absolutely. <laughs> it, it hooked me in. It absolutely did. It hooked me in. And it was great to even get it after the forward from Rob Van Dam, because Rob Van Dam, even in his forward, stated there's some stuff in here I never knew about. And I'm almost positive that story was one of the things he never knew. Well, Rob couldn't believe it because uh, not that particular story, but I mean, like, because I, I shared the book with him, obviously, when it was finished, before it was published. And he could not believe the fact that um, at the time that Sheik was training him in 1990 and he was going to their house, Joyce, the Sheik's wife, was making food for them and all this stuff. He was around them. And he discovered in the book that they were going through a divorce at that time. He didn't even know that that was happening while he was with them, hanging out with them, that Joyce had filed for divorce against the Sheik. And eventually they reconciled, but he had no idea that was even going on. Like, that's how secretive that they could be, you know? It's got to be amazing, though, but it's also got to be kind of, in a lot of ways, cryptic. Like, here's Rob Van Dam, a guy who, like you said, stayed in their house, trained there for many years. How could uh, the fact that he could even hold that from his students? I mean, this is a man who didn't like to share secrets. He must have taken an insurmountable amount to the grave. Oh, yeah. And that's what you have to come to terms with, too. There were things that you'll just you'll just never know, like. In, in the early years before wrestling and, and even like even into the wrestling years, but before he became a really big star, you know, I would have loved to have included even more detail and gotten into more detail of those of his childhood and his his early years as an adult and getting married and meeting his wife. And but I really included all that I could find. And I had to take these little tidbits and little pieces and little quotes and things and little clues and try to like build it into a story, you know, and, and it was hard enough. And I eventually had to acknowledge the fact that just the early years were not, were not going to be as thorough as the wrestling years. And that's also why I tried to give a lot of background on his family before he was even born, because I thought, well, let me try to flesh this out 
other ways, you know, so I would go on ancestry.com and find out about his, when did his family come here? Where was his father born? Where was his mother born? What, what town did they come from in Syria? All that stuff. And just, again, put in as much as, as I could just to kind of make up for things I would never be able to fill in. And that's, that's a credit to you, man. I, I would have, I'm not going to lie. The person I am, I love wrestling. I love trying to uncover stories about things. But something like this, I would have been like, no, I'll leave this to the professionals myself. I, you are a professional, but I'm not well, a professional. I am. <laughs> yes, you are. I couldn't. I couldn't do it. I would if I if I if I pitched this and I undertook the idea, I'd be like, all right, here we go. I'm ready. 20, 30 minutes in, I'd be like, you know what? I'm gonna give the deposit. I'm gonna give the uh, the advance back. I can't. It's not for me. It's not for me. <laughs> yeah. No, I. It never got that bad for me. But I had a lot of time on my hands too because um, I tell a lot of people that the pandemic and the lockdown. In a, in a weird way, actually helped the book because I was stuck home and my day job at the time, my hours were cut or I was working from home. And, you know, I, I was I had more free time on my hands than I normally would have had. I was stuck in the house, couldn't go anywhere. And there were periods of the book process where it became my full time job, nine to five every day, like a job, I would just get up, go down to my office and work for eight hours. Like, that's why the book is as thorough as it is. If I was just like getting an hour or two at night, when I'm half exhausted, I don't think it would be the kind of book that that it, that it became like the level of detail, I would not I would just have to go. I can't go down this rabbit hole. I just don't have the time. But I had the time to go down the rabbit holes. I could go through court documents. I could go through, like I said, ancestry.com. I could order a military record from the US government and wait like three months for it to come in the mail because I had the time, you know? And then when I get it, I'm like, oh my God, I can now, that's why the chapter of his military service, I was able to give in day-to-day detail where he went, what he was doing, in the war, in training, because it's all documented by the government, like what his what his group was doing. So I can I can know exactly where he was on any given time. That was because I had the time to wait for the U.S. government to very slowly in their the way they do things, find this record, get it to me. Uh, you know, it was this it was like this Xeroxed copy because apparently And I knew this because I have an uncle who fought in the war at World War II, and I tried to get his records. There was apparently a fire in the 1970s in the records department before computers. You know, it was all on paper. And they lost a lot of records of soldiers. Stuff was just burned. And some of them were able to be salvaged. And so what they sent me was like it was actually a photocopied page of a half-burned piece of paper that had like the remnants of the sheik's military record on it and then i had to go by the clues on that i was able to do research on the internet like whatever it was company whatever tank battalion whatever and i could look up who were they where did they go who were they under what battles were they in and i pieced it all together like that and that's incredible i mean that's a great that's one of my favorite chapters is going that in-depth detail i mean this reads like a movie so I got to ask you this question. I mean, Hollywood's always picking up books. Hollywood's also trying to, you know, do the biographies. If somebody were to come to you and say, listen, we want to turn this into a movie, who would you cast as the Sheik? 
I I have thought about this. I don't really know, but uh, I've thought about it because um, there has never been, at least to my knowledge, there's never, of all the wrestling books and biographies particularly that have been written, not a single one of them has ever been turned into a movie, ever. And I would love to be the first one because I think it's a great story, even if even if you don't know who the guy is, if you're a younger person or whatever, just on the basis of the story itself, I think it would be worth doing. But God, I, I couldn't even tell you who could do it. I mean, I don't know. Cause I've poured, I've banged my head on the table trying to think of things like that. Like who would play Bobo Brazil? Who would play Abdullah Farouk? Who would, you know, who would play the Sheik? I don't know if I if I if I think of it, it'll probably be after we're finished, and then it will come to me. But but I I don't. It's such a unique person because the thing is, like he he wasn't even built like what we would think of as a wrestler. You know, like for example, on the show Young Rock, they have the guy. Oh, I forget his name. I just met him at a convention and a book signing. Very nice guy. He plays the Iron Sheik on the show, right? And he's a he's a bodybuilder, you know. And I mean, he probably is in even better shape, to be honest with you, than Iron Sheik was, especially at that point. But Iron Sheik was once in phenomenal shape and looked like you know a, a, a like a Greek statue. And this guy is in incredible shape. But not even a guy like that couldn't even play the Sheik. He would have to be a, a kind of a almost like an average build person you know it'd be very tough to find very tough to find it it would probably have to be honestly an unknown probably have to be an unknown oh i i if anybody could do it brian you can we can make this into a movie we get on enough of these shows we start pro we start you know petitioning this it can happen they've made a lot of movies that shouldn't be movies this is a movie a story that deserves to be told on a big screen and that's a credit to your writing and obviously you'll have to have a hand in the script because if you don't you know, i'm gonna boycott the movie <laughs> And they would have to, and I think if that happened to the, that the family would, would, should be included at that point. Of course. Uh, where I couldn't, you know, because there, then there's, there's more money to be made. So hopefully we'd be able to do that. I just thought of someone who actually might not be half bad, just popped into my head. All right. And it, it, um, he is an, he's actually an Indian actor. His name is Dev Patel and he's probably best known as the kid He's not a kid anymore, but the kid from Slumdog Millionaire. Yes. Okay. Um, yes. Yes. He's been in other things. He was in like the TV show, The Newsroom. Um, he was just recently in The Green Knight. He was the star of that movie. And he's an older guy now. I think he could probably pull it off. I think he's got a bit of an accent, which he'd probably have to lose because the Sheik was American. But um, I think he could. I think he could actually do it. I think he he I think he'd have the right look for sure. They could get that to work. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, again, this is we're talking, discussing Blood and Fire, the amazing book that Brian here has written. And Brian, now I mean you're a fan like myself. I gotta ask this. I mean, let's shift away from the book for a few questions here. In sure. all the time periods in wrestling. Uh, looking at wrestling the way it is now, very pop culture again, looking at it was in the late 90s, early 2000s, extremely popular, looking the way it was in the 80s, early 90s, like there's always been peaks and valleys of wrestling's popularity. But when you look at all the eras of the amazingness from the characters, the spectacle of this sport that we both love, what is your favorite time period as a fan? 
As a fan, you mean like during my years of being a fan, like watching wrestling? Absolutely. Like if you okay. look at if you look at because I mean you're probably still semi into the pro- product now. You may not watch it faithfully, but you're into it. What, I am. what looking at all the the spectrums, looking at all the decades, what is as just a fan? What is your favorite time period? I would have to say from the time that I've been watching wrestling, which I think is what you mean, because I'm you know as a wrestling historian, like I I read about wrestling going back you know till. 100 plus years you know Mm -hmm. but from the time that i've been watching i honestly have to say it was a period where the business was kind of down and i think it depends you know it's weird it it, when you ask people this question even not just about wrestling but about anything it's like the period you always love the most i think is the period when you're a younger person you know and you're like first getting into it and it's something new so i would have to say i mean i got into wrestling and big time in 1987 but i would say the peak of my like obsession as a young person would be early to mid 90s so like 91 to let's say 96 even or 95 like that's when i was the most fanatical about wrestling and it's funny because that was the era of the new generation in WWF, which often gets like maligned because the business was really down and there were all the scandals and you had really some really lame gimmicks. And I get it. And, and I didn't even like that back then, like the mentors of the world and the Fantasios and TL Hopper and the, the goon. I didn't like that even then. But you also had Bret Hart. You had Shawn Michaels. You had Razor Ramon, you know, you had uh, the Legion of Doom coming in as a tag team and just like the British Bulldog and Flair and Savage. Like I that era of WWF and also WCW at the same time, I'm a big fan of the era of WCW right before Hogan came in and even and way before the NWO. Like I love the era of Big Van Vader. Ron Simmons, the Dangerous Alliance, Dusty Dustin Rhodes versus Rick Rude, Ricky Steamboat coming back, like William Regal or Lord Stephen Regal. I love that era so much. And I know like they were in the crapper at that time. I get it. But I didn't care. I was I was in high school and college. I don't care about their business at that point. Like now I, I, I read about the inside of the industry and I work in the industry as a kid, I didn't care. That's why I, I can't understand when, when you get kids and young fans that are arguing about the business side of wrestling, like the ratings and the ticket sales. And like, look, I understand myself. Like I get caught up in that. Yes. I, I'm, I work in the industry in some form. Like I follow the business side of the business, but a kid just watching wrestling, why would you care what company is doing better than another company? Just love what you love. So you know, I love that early 90s WCW. In fact, I just wrote a whole column about it in PWI because I have this retro column there called The Way It Was. And I said, you guys, please let me write about early 90s WCW. And also on top of all that, in that same era, you have the explosion of ECW happening. 93, 94, 95, 96. Like to me, even by the time they got to pay-per-view in 97, to me as a fan, the peak had already passed. 
Do you know what I mean? Like their best years had already passed by that point because that's when they were getting like raided by WCW and WWF and everything and all their best ideas were being stolen. When the Attitude Era really kicks in, it's almost like ECW becomes obsolete because you have the big companies doing it on a much bigger scale. You know, maybe they, they can't get away with as much, but they're doing it now mainstream. So, so that whole, like, yeah, like 91, I would say to 96, that was my like heaven period as a wrestling fan where I was the most obsessed with it. I, I would have to say, I agree with you. I agree with you. That was one of my favorite time periods too. Don't get me wrong. I look at the attitude era and I'm like, yeah, this was great. But even as an adult going back and watching some of this stuff on the network, when I was a teenager, I'm like, uh, it doesn't hold up. It doesn't hold up like well, it was when I was a kid. No, you're right. You're right. It doesn't. And and um, even at the time, because like when when things started, when the WWF started really going insane, like e even before 98, like even in 97, they were doing you had like Brian Pillman stealing Terry Runnels and you had you had dust, gold dust in a ball gag and all this crazy stuff. Pillman with the gun at Austin's Austin with the gun at Pillman's house. So like even by 97. I'm like, you know, I'm not a kid anymore. I'm 22. I'm out of college already. And I'm kind of going like, all right, I understand it's getting bigger than ever and they're making money and it's much the ratings and people are, the shows are selling out. But as a fan from a creative standpoint, I started liking it less like because the quality of the matches wasn't that great. Like people forget about that in the attitude era. Like a lot of the matches were garbage you know, Austin was awesome and the rock was great. And like, whenever they were in the ring together, it was magic. I think that Austin versus rock in the Astrodome in 2001 is probably the best WrestleMania main event of all time. Um, but a lot of the other stuff was just awful, you know, and the, the story, it was all about the shock and the angles. And then when the bell rang, it was almost like that was secondary and you had titles changing like every five minutes. You had people going heel to face every five minutes. It was chaos. Like even as a young person, I could feel like the structure was out the window and I wasn't that comfortable with it. Like I liked the more like traditional like booking structure that I was used to in wrestling and WCW, like, like with the NWO, the NWO, you know, again, it's romanticized. Like it was awesome for like a year and then it just went on and yep. on yep. and on. And even by the time they blew it with sting at Starcade 97, I think that was, that was the point where it was like, what are we even doing anymore? What is this? And then they, they, they got Goldberg, which was like a gold mine. And then they blew that, it just, you know, with the politics of the NWO, they, they ruined it. And, so, yeah, I mean, like the, the long story short, a, a lot of things get romanticized that were not really that great. But in, in the moment, they were great for business. But it's like that kind of thing where that's the reason they didn't do all that kind of crazy stuff before is because the, they knew that once you do it and you burn through all that, then you can't ever go back. Like you can't put the genie back in the bottle. Like that's the reason that that the booking and was always so conventional and traditional and like a little more reined in because the thinking was always like, if you 
give them everything and you just go balls to the wall, eventually you're going to run out and the fans are going to burn out and you're not going to be able to build it back again. And I feel like that's the legacy of the attitude era. Like, like there's never been another boom quite like it since. And some people think that there never will be again, which is not a good sign for the business because you're supposed to have a boom like every generation or so. And it's almost like they just burned the, it's like scorched earth that you can't build on. So the attitude era has a weird kind of mixed legacy for me for that reason. Absolutely. And I couldn't even combat with you because everything you said with I 150% agree with, and this is a great way to end uh, the conversation. I want to thank Brian Solomon for joining me today. This has been an amazing conversation. I was a fan before, but now I can say that Brian Solomon is a member of the straight talk family and he can come back anytime he wants. So I'm honored to have you on the show today. And again, guys go out, get blood and fire the unbelievable true story of wrestling's original chic. It is a fantastic read. As soon as I jump off, I'm going to finish the last four chapters because I am so hooked. That's phenomenal. And I hope, I hope and pray that when that movie is announced, and I'm sure it will be in a couple of years, I really do believe that. If Dev Patel is cast, I'm going to send you a high five on Twitter and be like, you did it, buddy. You got who you wanted. <laughs> Brian. <laughs> Thank I'm you, friend, George. No problem. For anybody who doesn't follow you, sir, on this wonderful world of social media, where can they find you? Where can they pick your brain? Where can they learn about your upcoming projects and articles that you're doing? Okay, well, I'm on on Twitter. I'm Brian R. Solomon. That's probably the best place to go. I have a, a podcast of my own called Shut Up and Wrestle, which is part of the Arcadian Vanguard Network, and you can find it, you know, wherever you get podcasts. And it also has a Facebook group. So if you look up Shut Up and Wrestle with Brian Solomon, you will find that Facebook group. You can join it. That's another good way, also, to keep up with what I'm doing. Absolutely. Fantastic. Well, Brian, I will tag you in everything when this drops next week and it will drop next week because it's such an amazing conversation. I'm going to fast track you right to the front because I want all my listeners to enjoy this one as much as I have. As always, guys, I'm your host, your boy, George McKay. Thank you so much for watching. Peace, love and wrestling. We'll see you next time. Thank you so much for listening. Don't forget to tune in next week for another great episode on all available podcast platforms and hosted on Podbean. Also, check us out on YouTube at Straight Talk Wrestling, on Instagram at Straight Talk Wrestling, on Facebook at Straight Talk Wrestling, and on Twitter at underscore Straight Talk. And if you feel the need to buy some sweet merch, check us out on ProWrestlingTees.com. Leaving the scene with no trace Not in my lead, you out of place I'm not at the top, I'm outer space Can't eat with us, we're out of place I'm doing fine, I'm feeling great You're not my fan, you can't relate Straight talk going state to state